it is an honour to come and I thank you for the opportunity and it's good to be with you and may God bless and lead you and uh, direct you in every way. Um, the reading is two short passages from Genesis. Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6. Very short passages. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. Genesis chapter 5 verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. Then Genesis chapter 6 and verse, I can't read these, 5. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind out whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men, animals and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account, Hebrew, these are the generations of Noah. This is the context in which he's living. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. This is the word of God. Amen. Uh, well, fish and chips for me. <laughs> it is with a sense of, of um, huge responsibility that I come and open the word of God to you. And I do it with this heartfelt prayer that God will um, speak to us all. 
I want to ask you to consider Genesis 5, 22-24, and after Enoch became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Genesis 6, verse 9. This is, this is the account. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. At the fraternal that I go to at Annisland Reformed Baptist Church, mixed group of ministers, Church of Scotland, Baptists, free church, free church continuing, this, that and the other. Every autumn we have to choose the themes for the following year. And I wrote to the man that leads it, the Reverend David Carmichael at, at Les Mahega, and I said, there's one thing, as absolutely, quintessentially important. And the ministers need to consider this more than anything else. I'm so convinced of it. It is communion with God. And I speak to you. Now, now, I don't know what your life work is, whether you're a surgeon or a school teacher or a postman or postwoman or a laborer or a farm worker or a shopkeeper, or, or an academic, or an aeroplane pilot, or resident of a retirement home, or a young man of 16, full of life, or full of pain. I don't know whether you're living or dying, whether you're old or young, whether you're Scottish or Welsh or Nigerian, whether you're famous or unknown, whether you're popular or lonely, successful or a failure, there is one thing you need, and it is the preeminent thing you need communion with God. A preacher without this is nothing. The preacher, uh, if he has no communion with God, may be a tap of living water. And the tap is piped to the Bible and may be supplemented with Calvin's Institutes and Samuel Rutherford's letters and erudite and deep 
thinking commentaries till what he says is beneficial to those who hear. But it comes from them. And it doesn't come from him. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. The God who is the God of the preacher has one desire that he and the preacher may be in communion together. That when the preacher comes to speak to the people, he comes from the presence of God. There are two patriarchs of the human race of whom it is said they walked with God. Enoch in his house after he became the father of Methuselah Enoch walked with God. Now Methuselah, Methuselah lived possibly 31 years short of a thousand years. So what were his teenagers like? Can you imagine? How often Enoch would have had to say to Methuselah, Methuselah, will you tone down those drums a bit? Or, Methuselah, will you stop grunting and mumbling and speak? Or, Methuselah, you're not wearing that filthy old sweater again. Or when Methuselah started dating, Methuselah, old chap, go steady on the aftershave. You don't want to knock her out completely. And that went on, I don't mean the teenage years, but pretty good watch of them, all the rest of Enoch's life. But Enoch walked with God. I wonder what family worship was like there. I wonder what Sabbath was like there. What was it like when Enoch 
walked with God. And in Noah, Noah walked with God in his world. Genesis 6, 5 and 9. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. I am at the end of my life, surely. I mean, you can't be 85 without thinking of the end. I tell you, there is one thing more than anything else. I want to walk with God. This verb, to walk, to walk with God, it is, as the grammarian said, metonym. It is a reference to this relationship with God. Walking with God. Think of it. First of all, walking with God implies learning to do so, doesn't it? You had to learn to walk. We all did. That precarious tumble and stagger and that concentrated attempt to get those awkward things called legs one after another to get from the settee to the armchair with mother and father and aunts and uncles saying, oh, he's walking. We had to learn. And we have to learn to walk with God. The toddler can't imagine how walking could ever be a learned thing. It's so awkward. It's so demanding of concentration to get those muscles working. But the time will come when having learned oh, we walk with God. God said through Hosea to his people, it was I who taught Israel to walk, taking them by the arm. Isn't that lovely? Secondly, walking with God implies walking at 
his pace and in his direction. I mean, suffused through this way of speaking of it is the golden glory of divine guidance. But keep up with God and press not ahead of his directing. When I was a youth in my con the congregation of my home church, I remember the minister speaking of Matthew 26, 58 and 75. Peter followed him at a distance. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And it wasn't perhaps particularly accurate exposition of the context, but the truth is manifest. If you walk at a distance, it will end in tears. Oh, walk with God at his pace and in his direction. Thirdly, walking with God implies closeness to God. Does it not? His presence is the unrivaled priority. Um, the preacher, and since I am a preacher, I mean, not much one, but I am a preacher, I know what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But sometimes I hear my colleagues say, I, I can't live unless I preach. And I am disturbed by that. Preaching is not the priority. The priority is the presence of God. And when the preaching is over, the best is yet to be. The preacher goes back into the presence of God. I tell you, this is not a theological axiom. This is an experiential testimony. This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He takes of the things of Christ and he opens them to the soul. He glorifies Christ until the whole horizon of one's thinking is marvelous with the loveliness of 
Jesus Christ walking with God implies closeness to God. Fourthly, walking with God implies walking through change. Now that's so obvious. And you can't take a step without change. The scene changes. The place changes. The circumstances change. And you walk with God through change. As a congregation, you are walking through change. Your beloved pastor is not your pastor now. You walk with God through change. Each of us, we walk through different circumstances. Sometimes we walk with God on mountaintops. Sometimes in the valley. We walk with God in the midst of family and friends and ability and loss of ability, in facing responsibility, in redundancy. It's all chop and change all the time. But we walk with God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Fifthly, walking with God implies agreement. Amos, he was a, a sheep rearer or a shepherd. He worked in the wilderness of Tekoa. That was his home place, the wilderness of Tekoa. It was wide, open spaces. And from his childhood, his eyes were trained to focus upon great distances. And he it was who wrote, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so. This agreement is not that we bump into a friend in the supermarket and say, oh, how nice to see you. It's not that at all. It's an agreement. It's an arrangement. It's on the program for the day. I must be walking with God. It's a necessary matter. There must be time with God. I think I'm overwhelmed with John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And listen, 
we will come and make our home with him. Does God have a postal code? Yes. FK1 5PD. He makes his home with me. And I walk with God. Sixthly, walking with God implies the supreme choice. Now I want to differentiate there are subordinate and they're very good and powerful choices. The fellowship of God's people. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I've spent my life pastoring congregations and we've always had the awkward squad and we've always had things where we looked at differently, but there are no people on the face of the earth like God's people. And I am grateful to God. I think of John Fawcett, Hebden Bridge in Yorkshire in the 18th century. And uh, oh, the stipend was so slight and his family was growing and he didn't know how to make ends meet. And he was called to Carter's Lane Chapel in London to follow the famous doctor John Gill and he accepted it. It was the end of all this, this, this stringency and trying to make ends meet and the cart drew up outside the manse and all his bits and pieces were put there. I don't know how long it took, click, clock, click, clock, click, clock from Hebden Bridge down to London and there were all his bits and pieces on the cart and his congregation gathered round him and he looked at them and he said I can't I can't leave them I can't leave them and all the bits and pieces were taken off he was there for the rest of his life but he went in and he wrote, blessed be the time, the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Yes, the communion with God is the supreme choice. The time will come. Very likely it will come. When for sheer lack of strength, of mind, of our comprehension, of our awareness, even our very, very choicest and beloved are screened away from us and we are absolutely alone with God. 
Well shall it be if long before that our heart has cried, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon us that I desire beside thee. Seventhly, walking with God implies the unseen reality. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Nobody could see God. No one has seen God at any time. And yet there was this sense of a presence of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. It isn't auto-suggestion. It isn't that we are hypnotizing ourselves. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, until he makes God the absolute and glorious reality. And the whole purpose of our life is to live for his glory. And we walk in the serenity of that which we cannot see, but which is absolutely real. Eighthly, we walking with God implies the devotional heeding of what he says. Well, that's very important. You must never think that walking with God is somehow divorced from your devotional use of Scripture. Because if you suppose that, you are mistaken. Um, Luke 24, verses 13 to 31 is the classic example. You know the case. Those two disciples set out for Emmaus and they were utterly disconsolate. Their world had fallen apart. Their beloved Lord had been nailed to a cross. There was nothing to live for. Nothing to believe nothing to rely on and trudge, trudge, trudge they were going back to Emmaus and oh, of all things a stranger came and broke in upon their company it was the last thing they wanted the only reference actually in that passage to walking was from him. What are you discussing, he asked, as you walk? And they told him. And they dismayed deeper because they said, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? 
And then of all things, he asked, what things? What things? So they told him all they knew. And then he said, oh, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he just opened the scriptures and he did a thorough review of all the scriptures, of the things concerning himself and those two disciples. They didn't know who it was, but their hearts were burning within them. There was something so glorious about this and they couldn't identify. And they got to Emmaus and one of the disciples put the key in the front door and oh, they thought, he's going on. No, they say, come in. And they went in and sat at the table and their eyes were open. And they knew him. And you know, every time that I open the word of God in my study, it's like going again to Emmaus and the presence of the risen Lord. You, you must understand this, walking with God implies devotional heeding of what he says. And finally, walking with God implies reaching his chosen destination. Think of it. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy upon their heads. Isaac Watts, the early 1700s, a man that I really think we ought to rediscover in his writings, wrote a hymn. And the first lines and the last lines of it are these. Come, Ye that love the Lord, and let your joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Thus surround the throne. But then the end of it. Then let our songs abound. And every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. 